It's a great thing to think about, right? The side that bled for me is the fount of living water. The side that bleds for me washes all my sin away. The side that bled for me is the author of salvation, the one who sets me free. Do you choose the side that bled for you? Let's uh, continue our time here this morning in, uh, in prayer. Father, we come to this part of uh, our gathering together where we hear the teaching of your word. And what a great focus to start off realizing that it's the death of Jesus Christ and the blood that he shed that brings us here. As Peter says, even in the passage we're going to read today, that we were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. I pray, Father, that you would help us to have a deeper appreciation of what that means for us, and we thank you. And so now I pray that you would teach us through your word, that you would teach us the truth of your word by the power of your spirit to the hearts of your people for the building of your church and for the honor of your name. And so we commit this time to you and trust that you will have your way with us. In Jesus' name, amen. It's great to be together again as we continue our study in 1 Peter. Uh, I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, we're going to look at verses 13 to 25. Uh, and as we do that, I was reminded of uh, what Luke tells us in the book of Acts. Uh, Paul had just been run out of Thessalonica by people who were opposed to his preaching of the gospel, and he ends up in Berea. In Acts 17.11, Luke records about those people in Berea to whom Paul was preaching from the Scriptures, preaching the Bible. It says, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And so one of the reasons I always invite you to open the Bible with me is that you would be noble, that it would be said of you that you were noble, that you received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things be so. Uh, Paul was preaching from the scriptures. He was an apostle, and yet these men and women were examining the scriptures daily to see if things were so. And I trust that would be said of us as well. So I'm going to read 1 Peter 1, verses 13 to 25, and we'll dig into this. I think what I'd like to do, just like to ask everybody to stand together as I read, um, just to get a little change of position here and to focus on the reading of God's Word. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, 
who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Amen. You may be seated. As I mentioned last week, if you were here, the first word there in verse 13 is therefore. Therefore. Uh, those of you who've heard me speak before will know that if there is a therefore, you must ask the question, what is the therefore, therefore? It is referring back to something that has already been said, and what it is that has been said is what Peter just told us in verses 1 to 12. He says, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. We were dead, and he has made us alive. He has an inheritance that is reserved for us in heaven, and not only is he keeping the inheritance for us, he's guarding and keeping us for that inheritance. And then God uses the trials of this life to melt us down, to refine us, and to make us like Jesus. So Peter says, based on that, based on what God has done for us, he says here, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you when you see Jesus face to face. Peter is saying our future hope should drive our present life. Our future hope should drive our present life. And he says two things here. He said, prepare your minds. Prepare your minds. The, the word that's translated prepare for action, prepare your minds for action, is the word that often is translated in some of your translations. You'll see it, gird up your loins. It's not a phrase that we use much these days, but what it refers to is putting yourself together with the work that you have to do. If you're a soldier, girding up your loins means putting on your armor and strapping on your sword and making sure everything is cinched down tight. If you're a fisherman, making sure your garments are such that you can do what you have to do freely and your nets are ready. Uh, for me, girding up my loins uh, for work every day, and this is my routine, this is my bag that I take to work. Uh, first thing, most important, is I have to make sure my lunch is in the refrigerator because I know that I'm going to get hungry later and I'm going to need energy for my job. I take out my laptop and I turn it on and I open up all the programs that I'm anticipating that I'm going to be needing that day. Then I put on my badge, which has my keys to the office, also as a reminder of who I am in case I forget during the day. <laughs> uh, also has the, uh, the cards that give me access to the, don't you love having access to a place that says for authorized personnel only? Isn't that really nice? Uh, whoa. Whoa. <laughs> 
just like Paul's glasses betrayed him, I think this stand betrayed me. I'm going to have to do something else with this. So I get out my water bottle because I'm going to need to be drinking during the day. And then the last piece of equipment that I have to put on because it's the tool of my trade that I use most often and I have to uh, wear my stethoscope. So that goes here. And so now I'm ready. And actually my day starts when I get dressed before I even leave for work. Because basically, I look pretty much like this when I go to work. I have to dress professionally. I'm expected that way by my employer. I'm also expected that way by my patients. They don't want me dressing in my painting clothes or my biking clothes. They want me to, they want me to at least make a pretense that I look like a doctor, even though I may not be one. So this is what it means to gird up my loins for action for that day, to get myself prepared, to put on, tighten up, get everything ready that needs to be done. Sometimes I end up in the exam room and I reach for my stethoscope to examine and I realize I hadn't put it on. So I have to leave and go back to my office and get it. So Peter says, prepare your minds, gird up your loins for action. And then he says, be sober-minded. It would not be very good if I showed up for work drunk. Uh, Peter says, be sober-minded, think clearly, don't be under the influence of things that are going to, to alter your way of thinking. And so as you prepare your minds and you are sober-minded, he says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. How do we prepare our minds each day when we get up and start our day? Do you focus on your to-do list? Do you focus on what challenges awaiting you? Do you focus on the uncertainty, perhaps the difficult relationships that you're going to face? Do you prepare your mind by focusing perhaps on what you can do just for you that day or what fun you're going to have? Or do we dress our minds with what God has done for us and will do for us? When we get up in the morning, do we prepare our minds? Do we gird up the loins of our minds by thinking of who God is and what he has done for us and will do for us and he's promised to never leave us or forsake us? Or do we prepare our minds with the worries and anxieties and fears of the day? Peter says we should prepare our minds and be sober-minded by setting our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But then Peter goes on to say what happens to our lives when we set our minds on God and his grace toward us. He gives us three commands in the rest of this chapter that we're going to look at. Three commands that we can, that, that uh, arise out of our setting our mind on who God is and what he has done for us. The first command we see in verse 15, he says, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Be holy in all your conduct. That word holy means to be pure. It means to be sinless. We are to be as holy as God. Let that sink in a little bit, right? He says, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We are to be as pure and sinless as God. What a high standard. But what I'd like to say is I really don't want you to think of it as a difficult goal at all. I don't want you to think of it as a very difficult goal at all. What I want you to do is think of it as an impossible goal. This is not a difficult goal. It is an impossible goal. 
If it was a difficult goal, we would be able to deceive ourselves into thinking that maybe we could get there on our own. But because it's an impossible goal, we know that we can't get there. Well, there are wrong ways to deal with this impossible goal to holiness, this call to holiness. So God is up there. I mean, my arms aren't even big enough to, to stretch the distance between where we are down here and where God is up here. But one way we deal with this impossible call to holiness is we minimize God's holiness. We bring him down. One of the things that it's like, for those of us who remember chalkboards, it's like the grating of fingernails across the chalkboard. It's when somebody says, well, you know, the man upstairs is taking care of me. The man upstairs, what is this? God is somebody who's renting a room in your house? Uh, or maybe he's working in your office and he has one of the executive suites on the floor above you and maybe someday you could get there. No, God is not the man upstairs. I was just talking to a patient of mine just this past week. I was trying to give her some hope in the midst of the difficult physical struggles she's having by saying, you know, that's why I'm looking forward to heaven because there's going to be no more pain, there's going to be no more sorrow. And her answer to me was, ah, God's just playing with us. God wakes up in the morning and says, oh, what can I give her today? What, what pain can I give her today? And then he sits there and he laughs because he's just playing with us. And I said, no, no, that's not who God is. And then she said, and this was in the same conversation, you know, Jesus would be smoking marijuana too. That's how my 70-year-old patient deals with the pains and struggles of her life and figures that Jesus would just come and join her in that. Now, we sort of laugh at that, but how many times do we do something similar of bringing God down? Well, God certainly can't mean that. He just wants us to do our best. There are lots of ways that we minimize God's holiness. What about the other mistake we make? Because we minimize our sin. We minimize who we are. We try to bridge the gap. Well, I'm not that bad. You know, I try really hard I'm better than other people. If I look around, all right, yeah, I'm at least better than 50% of the people here, so I should be okay. Well, I'm not perfect, but you know, no one is perfect. As long as I try hard, I'll be okay. What does Peter say to that? He says, as the Holy One who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Be holy in all your conduct. This is an impossible command. We cannot possibly fulfill that, but it is made possible by setting our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us when we see Jesus face to face. As we come before God and say, God, I am not holy. Forgive me. Make me holy by your grace. The fact that Jesus is coming back for us, the fact that we're going to see him face to face someday should be the motivation or one of the motivations for us to recognize that this is who God calls us to be, this is who he promises to make us to be, and he's at work in our lives to make us be holy. Be holy in your conduct, in all your conduct. Don't bring God down. Don't try to elevate yourself. Realize that God has already come down to us in Jesus Christ. Fix your hope fully on the grace of God that will be brought to you when you see Jesus face to face. The second command is in verse 17. He says, conduct yourselves with fear. Conduct yourselves with fear. 
We don't like to think about living before God in fear, but I'd like to give you a little example. Imagine with me, if you will, uh, I park across the street at the bank, and uh, every Sunday when we're done, I have to walk out on the sidewalk, and here's the curb, and there's the road. So what do I do? And I'm going to try not to do this because it could be very painful. But I look this way, make sure nothing's coming. If nothing's coming, I start, I step out on the curb, and then I look this way because if somebody's coming from that way, they're going to be in that other lane, and I'm going to be able to see them coming. And if they're coming, I'll either stay where I'm at in the lane and let him pass and go, or I'll have to back up because other cars are coming. But anyway, look this way, step out, and see what's coming. Many years ago, I visited London. You know where this is going, right? <laughs> I visited London with my daughter, uh, Sarah. Many of you know Sarah. We do have kids. We have three kids, by the way. You never see our kids, right? Three kids... Uh, three kids-in-law, eight grandchildren. I mean, it's, you know, you never see that, but unless I show the pictures. I was in London with my daughter, Sarah. She was studying there uh, over, overseas for a semester, and she was done. We were touring London. So we were walking through London, and so we had to cross the street. So I did my usual thing. Now, I know the rules, but I did the usual thing. I looked to the left. Nothing was coming. I started to step out. I looked to the right just to see this car coming right here in the curve. I was inches away from being nailed. God happened to look at my foolishness that day and gave me an undeserved favor, an undeserved rescue. He rewarded my foolishness, I guess, with an undeserved rescue. But I was inches away from that little stroll through London, being a trip to the emergency room in London and probably a prolonged stay in the hospital, uh, if not a visit to the funeral home. Because what happened? I was a person in a new country with unfamiliar customs, and I even knew the rules. If you had told me, well, what side of the street do they, they drive on? I'd say, well, the wrong side. I mean, the left side. <laughs> we drive on the right side. They drive on the wrong side. Uh, I would have told you what side of the street they drive on, but when it came down to my day-to-day -day living, I was back in my old patterns, stepped off the curb, looking the wrong way, and almost paid the price. The reason I share that in this context, I developed a very different kind of fear that day that actually had two components. And fear really always has at least these two components. One is a reverence an awe, a respect for these different traffic rules because I had just about, well, I had disobeyed the traffic rule almost to the cost of my health and life. But I also developed a fear of harm if I crossed the line, a fear of harm to myself, to my daughter, to my family if I had crossed the line. See, having a proper fear of God involves that. It's, it involves having this respect and this awe of who he is. But it also involves a fear of harm if I disregard who he is and disregard what he has said to me and if I disregard the things he said that I should do in my life. So this may not come as a surprise to you, but having a proper fear of God or a proper respect for God is not difficult at all. It's what? It's impossible. It's impossible for us by ourselves to have a proper respect and a proper fear of God. What curbs are you stepping off while looking the wrong way? 
What curbs are you stepping off while looking the wrong way? Are you flirting at the office? What about your online activities? What about drugs, substance use, drunkenness? What about sexual immorality of all kinds, whether it be heterosexual or homosexual? What about unhealthy relationships, pursuit of money or position? What about occult practices? What about anger, bitterness, jealousy, pride? The list could go on. What curbs are you stepping off while looking the wrong way? It's a fear of God that drives us to consider our ways, recognizing that he is worthy of all our awe and fear and respect, as well as having a fear of harm, that if I step out on that street, I'm going to get hit and hurt. If I go that way, I'm going to be hurt. By contrast, Peter says, prepare your minds to have a proper fear of God. Prepare your minds to have a proper fear of God. Have a fear of dishonoring the one who died for you. I don't want to dishonor God. Jesus died for me. God gave himself for me. I don't want to dishonor that. I should have a fear of dishonoring that. I should have a fear of bringing harm to myself and others by crossing the line. Now, if you're a believer, this is not a fear of punishment. Many of us live there. Well, God's just going to punish me. You know, it's like this, my patient. You know, well, God's just up there. He's playing with me. He's, you know, I didn't live a good life, and he's just he's messing with me. No, no, that's not who God is. And for those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, our sins have been forgiven. There is no fear of punishment. But that doesn't mean that there is not to be this healthy fear of, of reverence as well as an awareness of danger if we cross the line. Peter says, conduct yourselves with fear. It's an impossible command made possible by setting our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us when we see Jesus face to face. God, teach me a proper fear of you by your grace. The third command that Peter gives us is down in verse 22. He says, love one another, love one another. Love is, and there are lots of definitions of that, but a simple one is caring for someone else at least as much as I care for me. Jesus says, love others as you love yourself. So at least one definition is caring for someone else at least as much as I care for me. Peter says, do it earnestly, do it without ceasing, do it without any relaxation and effort, do it strenuously, and do it from a pure heart. Do it from a pure heart. No mixed motives, no what can I get out of it attitude. God calls us to love one another the way he loves us. He calls us to love one another the way he loves us. Loving one another the way God loves us is not very difficult. It is impossible. Well, you guys are a quick study. It is impossible for us to love as God loved. But, as Peter has been saying, we have been born again. He actually says it again there. In verse 23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God, through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. When Jesus calls us into relationship with himself to be born again, 
He calls us and empowers us to love the way he loved us so that we are enabled to love one another the way he loved us. He changes us. He transforms us through the blood of Christ and through his word. We are transformed by the written word of God, which is the expression of God's person and character. If you notice what Peter says there at the end of verse 23, through the living and abiding word of God, and then at the end of verse 25, this, this word is the good news, the gospel that was preached to you. So loving one another as God would have us is not difficult. It is impossible. But it is an impossible command made possible by setting our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us when we see Jesus face to face. God, help me by your grace to love my brothers and sisters as you have loved me. And forgive me where I fail and change me, transform me by your spirit and by your word. So, let's tie this up. Peter starts this section with a therefore, and he says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Allow your, the future expectation of Jesus' return to drive our present life. We should live now with eternity in view. We should live now with the idea that Jesus could walk through that door at any time. And that we should order our lives, not out of fear of punishment, but out of a desire to please him and follow him and to love him fully, aware of the dangers that if we disobey. Peter says, be holy in all your conduct. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. These behaviors are not difficult. They are impossible. But what Peter is saying that these become possible when we receive of the grace of God in our lives. So whether you're a follower of Jesus or not a follower of Jesus, and today would be an invitation if you're not a follower to come talk to me or someone to learn what it is to become a follower of Jesus. But whether you're a follower or not, you don't really primarily have a holiness problem. You don't really primarily have a fear of God problem. And you don't primarily have a love problem. You have a hope problem. You have a hope problem. You have a problem with who or what you are looking for for help in this life. The holiness, fear, and love issues will be worked out only as we put our hope and trust in God and His grace toward us in Jesus Christ. That's why Peter says, set your hope fully on the grace that it is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we don't primarily have a holiness problem a love problem or a fear problem, we have a hope problem. Where are we setting our hope? Where are we looking to get the power, the strength we need to do what God would have us to do? In preparing for this study, I came across a poem that uh, I had heard before and I think really fits here. Many, many of you may have heard it before. It's a poem by Ella Wheeler Wilcox. This is the second half of that poem. And actually, I think our picture, I, lo I love this picture of the sailboat uh, on the lake or wherever they are, the bay, wherever they are, uh, reflecting life on our journey home, right? We're all on a journey home. If we're a follower of Jesus Christ, we're on a journey home. We're on our journey to heaven. We're on a journey to the new heavens, the new earth. And Peter is talking about that journey home, and he's saying that journey home should affect how we live now. 
And this picture really fits into this, po this poem. One ship sails east and another west with the self-same winds that blow. It's the set of the sails and not the gales that tells the way we go. Like the winds of the seas are the waves of time as we journey along through life, tis the set of a soul that determines the goal and not the calm or the strife. I'd like to do that again. One ship sails east and another west with the self-same wind that blows. It's the set of the sails and not the gales that tells the way we go. Like the winds of the seas are the waves of time as we journey along through life, tis the set of a soul that determines the goal and not the calm or the strife. I think Peter would agree with that because he says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope, set your sails, set your soul fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Look back with gratitude on Jesus' death and resurrection, that he rescued you. Look ahead to the additional grace that will be brought to you when you see Jesus face to face. And you know, Laurel and I have been talking about that. If he doesn't come back soon, uh, she and I expect that sometime in the next 20 years or so, one of us or both of us are going to see Jesus face to face. For some of us, that might be 10 years. Some of us, it might be five years. For Karen Mellon, she's there. We're going to see Jesus face to face. So we should look not only back with gratitude on Jesus' death and resurrection that he rescued us, but look ahead to that additional grace that will be brought to us when we see him. That should be our hope. That's what we should be living for. That should influence life on our journey home. That should drive us because it's the set of the sails and not the gales that tells the way we go. Peter also talks about in verse 23 to 25 that part of this change that God brings in our lives is not just the blood of Jesus Christ, which he talked about earlier, but also the living and abiding Word of God. It's the Scriptures. When we get up in the morning, do you gird the loins of your mind with the Word of God? Do you dress yourself with the Bible? Do you spend time, however short or long it is, to be able to focus your mind, to set your soul on who God is by what is in the pages of this book? I would encourage you to do that. Gird up, prepare your mind with the truth that we see in the Bible. I recently heard a speaker, I guess it's uh, London Day, uh, from a Britisher, uh, Rico Tice, uh, fascinating speaker uh, once you get past his uh, heavy British accent. But he says when he starts a day, there are four questions that he asks himself and four answers that he gives. Question number four is why is today a better day than yesterday? And the answer is today is a better day than yesterday because I'm one day closer to seeing Jesus face to face. Why is today better than yesterday? Today is a better day than yesterday 
because I'm one day closer to seeing Jesus face to face. What I'd like to do is give us just a time of silent reflection on what God is saying to you at this time, and then I'll close in prayer. If you're a believer, see where it is that God may be speaking to you. If you're an unbeliever, this is an opportunity for you to come and say, God, I am separated from you. I am a sinner in need of your rescue. Would you please rescue me? But I'm just going to take a few moments for us to silently reflect on that before I close in prayer. Father, I want to thank you for this time we've been able to spend with your word this morning. And I pray that your spirit would have his way with us to drive the truths of your word deep into our hearts that we can be changed, that something in us can be changed as we look at this life. Where are we putting our hope? What are we looking at? If we're having trouble in these areas of conducting ourselves with holiness, or conducting ourselves with fear, or loving one another. The problem is not trying to get more holiness, fear, or love. It is setting our hope on you and on the grace that you have given to us. And so I pray that we would recognize that we need to prepare our minds for action and be sober-minded and set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would help us to live in that grace, that that call to obedience is an impossible call, but one that you make possible because of your Spirit's work in us and the truth of your word. Help us to realize that we have been ransomed, we have been rescued with the precious blood of Christ. It's all because of Jesus Christ that we live. It's all because the blood of Jesus Christ that covers my sin and raised us from death to life. It's in his name that we ask you these things, and it's his name that we desire to honor. It's his name that we desire to lift up in our midst. So God, may you be pleased to help us to draw closer to you by your grace to live these things out, setting our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.